Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film and content specialist Cam Maitland and curator and film historian Alicia Fletcher. We shall be reunited forever in a secluded corner of the great Elysian field of the beautiful beyond recognize this voice? It's possibly one of the most distinguishable voices in the English-speaking world. Vincent Price's career spanned seven decades, and he started out as a tall drink of water heartthrob in a comedy, Service Deluxe, in 1938. In one of my favorite Jane Russell, Robert Mitchum pair-up movies, 1951's His Kind of Woman, he steals the show with some amazing gags as a gun-crazy, out-of-touch Hollywood actor. But if you were watching Vincent Price in the 70s, you would know him as a horror icon whose career in the 60s was picked up by Corman after a great run by Castle in the 50s. A staple of late-night television talk shows and a game show must-get guest, Google his appearance on What's My Line immediately for an instant mood boost. He was a culinary adventurer. If you haven't seen him cook a whole trout in a dishwasher on Johnny Carson, you are missing out, as well as a famed art collector. And that's just scratching the surface of this man from Missouri who took Hollywood by storm. That's right. He was from Missouri. Alicia, from your gushing over his voice work in The Great Mouse Detective, I am sure you're a fan. So what else do we need to know about Vincent Price besides his grandfather invented baking powder? <laughs> like, this is wild. <laughs> was it baking powder? Yeah, bake, not That's baking correct. soda. So baking it was powder. the first cream of tartar baking powder. And so they have they got baking powder money in that family, which is why he was able to be an actor. Wow. So every well, time you stiffen your egg whites... In making either a, let's say, a pavlova or a lemon meringue pie, you owe Vincent Price's heritage. That's right. <laughs> um, yeah, he, I mean, it's interesting because he doesn't, he doesn't have a Missouri accent during his career. So I think that's probably why people are surprised he's from Missouri. But, um, mm. you know, he came from enormous wealth. Not surprising knowing that, uh, that his grandfather invented that. And went to art school and really just sort of fell in love with film. And like you said, started out in the 30s, but kind of came to prominence in the 50s, working a lot with Fox Studios, um, often playing a cad or like always a side character that kind of stole the show. Like I think of a film, um, which actually is more of the 40s, uh, Leave Her to Heaven, which is diabolical. If you haven't seen Leave Her to Heaven, please rush out and see it, um, where he kind of plays the fiancé. And he's he's very tall and very lurking. and But that voice, the voice is so interesting. He's very handsome in the 40s and 50s. It, it mm. changes later. But by the 60s, you know, he's starting to fall into the horror genre. Um, certainly something like 1960s, 1964 is The Last Man on Earth, which is the original Omega Man, I Am Legend, you mm. know, that story gets remade all the time um made him a huge star as did a few of the his earlier works in the 60s and then he just became 
kind of the Edgar Allan Poe AIP studios um, like favorite of Corman of you know he filmed a lot in Italy he he just like found his stride in the like I guess the third or fourth decade of his career and we know him I think you know as a child I would have known him as kind of the inspiration for Tim Burton so watching something like Edward Scissorhands and of course he is uh, mm-hmm. the inventor who is he's very very old in that film which is like 90 1990 right 91 mm-hmm. um in my childhood i knew who vincent price was i knew his pedigree and i had to learn as a film historian that he you know his career hugely predates the, his horror films and uh he was really like a studio actor but um he was such a personality. I remember him from my childhood from the hilarious house of Dr. Frightenstein. Which is this year. We're talking about 1971 and he filmed that all. It's a Canadian TV show. If you've never seen it, look on YouTube for some hilarious house of Frightenstein. He introed every episode. He was in town. He, number one, had a bit of a life in Ontario. He he summered in Ontario as a child, apparently. But uh, he was there for a, the the legend, as far as I know, for Frightenstein is that he was there for like a horror convention, and and uh, Billy Van convinced him to come for like a day and film what amounted to like hundreds of oh, intros to his TV show, uh, which is well, a delight. I'm thinking about intros. I think probably even predating Edward Scissorhands. If I'm talking about my infancy or being a toddler, like I I mm. loved the thriller video so much and like that voice was just synonymous with everything halloween with quality with music videos like it just became a voice that was in my head before even knowing the name vincent price go before that it's alice cooper and welcome to my nightmare he did it first right like he's just been there forever i think what i love so much about vincent price is the fact that he really embraced his brand and he i say that you know with quotes but he seemed like just such a fun dude who really just got it and he was he never had he just enjoyed doing stuff i think and he enjoyed he never uh had too big an ego i think he enjoyed being in whatever was really well known in our parents generation possibly even our grandparents generation for his cookbooks which like he was a, a very like before it was cool to be a foodie he was such a cooking enthusiast in a way that it was kind of rare for men to have their names on cookbooks i oh, would yeah. say and i was looking at um so one of the, there's many of them but the one that i was looking at recently was cooking price wise and so it's like kind of you know god i love it so saving. much but uh he <laughs> he's really well known for his bacon mousse which is basically like a bacon jello mm. um what? and i guess people are still making it. people are still like if you if you google there's a lot of blogs of people who've yes. gone recipe to recipe making all of vincent prices ridiculous even for the 70s ridiculous um recipes and they they re-released the book yeah. i think i seem to remember his daughter coming around with a re-release i feel like it's the one book. of the top selling cookbooks of all time it's just oh I, yeah I, it has I mean, to be i get it him and Julia Child <laughs> and, you know, the joy of cooking. Well, they were yeah, both very yeah, tall. Yeah. They could have cooked in the same kitchen, yeah. so it was fine. I think one of my favorite stories, there's two stories I love about him when I was going down the rabbit hole. I pulled myself out. Don't worry. Uh, the one I love is that he used to love to go to movie theaters and sit behind people when there was movies of his playing. And then at the end of the movie, he would lean forward and go, how did you like the film? Oh, and they would go God. through the roof, nice. which I'm like, okay, that's amazing. And the patience to wait to get to do that joke. So good. Um, and oh. the other thing, apparently, according to actor Alan, Alan Bates, he used to sign autographs Dolores Del Rio because apparently Dolores Del Rio said to that said to him once, don't ever let them forget me. So he just signs autographs for fans, Dolores Del Rio, which I love so which, much. Which considering so many people have forgotten Dolores Del Rio, who's, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, I love that you let me know that. That's actually really lovely. Like he was certainly <laughs> someone in the 
40s, that's probably the 40s, if not the late 30s, where he was just in that Hollywood circle because he also, I think, was a bit of, I don't know, a richie rich in terms of, like, you know, he didn't come to acting out of poverty. He was really sort of could have done anything he wanted um, in the world considering his, like, wealth. I also think that, like, he just did it all with gusto. And I think the movie we're going to talk about is quite funny because you hear these onset stories and they kind of don't add up, but they add up when you know that probably Joseph Cotton was very depressed to be in this yes. film, but Vincent Price was trying to cheer him up throughout the movie <laughs> by goofing work. around. They're like, Vincent Price kept ruining his makeup to doing jokes to Joseph Cotton. And it's like, God. oh, that sweet man. But let's get into this. It uh, It is Dr. Fibes. That's Ibs, as we are consistently reminded throughout the movie's runtime, the full the ab- name of the movie abominable. is The Abominable. That's right, The <laughs> Abominable Dr. Fives. Um, it's a product of AIP. That's American International Pictures, which we have mentioned a few times on this podcast, but we'll get a bit more into what it was. It was a division of MGM, which was one of the first production companies to use focus testing in order to market directly to teenagers. And as a horror lover, I am sometimes known to make a list of movies in my head that James Wan and Lee Whannell have definitely seen and removed the humor from to make saw this is on that list okay let's talk dr fibes where love means never having to say you're ugly cam cam there is so much acid there's so much acid in this movie uh, yeah there's there's a lot to talk about um yeah no, there's more acid I, I, number murders. one i would there is more there's acid <laughs> yeah, in both these movies and i'm sure it's meant to be a pun <laughs> number one i will say i think you're you're not giving enough credit for some of the jokes in saw saw, saw has some humor <laughs> uh you you haven't seen all those saw no, movies I have not. you don't I made it to two and was like, I'm good. Thanks, yo. (laughs) Um, But yeah, The Abominable Dr. Fives. uh, Basically like a revenge uh, film featuring Vincent Price as the center, as the titular Dr. Fives. Uh, He is a a strange man who does not speak, only speaks through a weird like vocal synthesizer. Connected to a Vitrola. Yeah, who is hunting down uh, doctors in the 1920s. You realize his wife uh, died on the operating table and he is he's chosen to uh, enact the uh, plagues of Egypt on these doctors uh, to get his revenge. Um, It is in it seems crazy. Like, how did they come up with this insane film? Uh, But a lot of it is, like you say, it's focus testing. And I think a lot of it is just coincidence. It's it's this beautiful 1920s set film. And it's partially because I think they had access to this 1920s set. And they were like, let's do it in the 1920s. Uh, also, uh, the director, Robert Fewest, was a big production designer, mm-hmm. set designer. So I think he was into that concept. He was the director that was um, known for the Avengers on TV, which was yeah, you know, yeah. in the 60s and one of the biggest shows of all time. So, I mean. And I think he did both set design. Yeah. Yeah, he did both set design and uh, directing on that, which is kind of fascinating. But yeah, it comes from this uh, tradition that I wanted to kind of touch on, uh, which I think an important thing to notice about AIP too, which we'll, we'll go, probably go into a bit more. But uh, in addition to what they did, like checking out American movies, is, is they... They checked out a lot of, I think, exploitation and genre movies. And then also they distributed a lot of European films. Like the same year they distribute Lucio Fulci's Lizard in a Woman's Skin. So I think that they know what's going on. And what was going on in Europe was this big boom in a return to uh, European pulp villains, which is a thing that did not necessarily super cross over into America. Unfortunately, probably the most famous one in America is uh, racist caricature Fu Manchu. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But uh, at the turn of the 20th century, there was all these characters 
characters, uh, stuff you might not know, like uh, Dr. Nicola. Uh, Dr. Mabuse is a little more famous. Uh, he was a German he one. He goes back to the silent era. a series of movies. Yeah, yeah. It's, and a lot of these guys had silent films. And Dr. Mabuse was originally a, a right. pulp hero. Um, but uh, the big one that had kind of hit in Europe was uh, The Return of Fantomas, who has a lot in common with... Uh, Fives and a Fantomas. There's also great silent films of him. Um, but in addition to Fantomas, who's a master of disguise, he also has kind of a flaccid comedy detective following him around. <laughs> He's murdering everybody. Uh, he was kind of re-envisioned as a James Bond villain in the 60s. Uh, but along with him, um, there's a lot of comics that, that were based on these ideas. Uh, uh, the, another famous one that you might know in America is Danger Diabolic, uh, the French yeah. film, uh, is kind of the same thing. Like, essentially, proto-supervillains, but there's also movies like Satanic, Criminal, all these Italian movies. So I think that there's something to that. It, a lot of these are just bad guys looking for revenge and the detectives trying to stop them and that and a lot of them have the humor that you see in fives which is a really weird this is such a funny film but also the elements of gore are so effective even for 1971 because they're it's a funny level of gore like i could not understand why he was boiling down so many brussels sprouts (laughs) until to make this green goo that he drips from the ceiling onto one of the surgical nurses faces and then release the locust Yeah. eat her skin off. Seems, I was like, what does he do? Yeah. Is one of the plagues Brussels sprout? I had like, <laughs> I was like, like the Bible, like, is, what? Is it going off book? Uh, yeah. I was like, is this a stench thing? Like, is this like a stench plague? Uh, yeah. But no, apparently not locusts. <laughs> I, I'd seen this a few times too and I was like, is this the acid? Is he getting the acid from Brussels sprout? Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. It's we we talk a bit about in our our future uh, upcoming episodes that in 1971 a lot of obscenity laws changed, and a lot of people don't think, but obscenity laws also include violence. Uh, and I think something AIP was looking at was the huge success of uh, independent exploitation people like Herschel Gordon Lewis, yes. who made a lot of monies in the 60s through essentially violent exploitation movies being like, here's all the blood, here's all the gore. Because this is the, the two movies we're talking about are quite oh, violent yeah. for the time. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, like a very yeah. tolerable in today's eyes um, violence, mm. but also just like. A level of violence I I what I didn't expect and was yeah. still shocked by. It really is like comic book violence come to life. Um, yeah. And there's two plagues that get swapped out here because you know I mm-hmm. guess they felt felt that on film the flies didn't make sense and gnats didn't make sense, so they replaced it with yeah. bats, which is kind of one of the first ones we get to see in action. And these are the most adorable giant fruit fruit bats. bats. They have like little baby eyes. They didn't actually scare me, but the way they're filmed where they just eat someone alive, drain them of his blood, it's all on close-up as though like the camera is on his neck and he's watching this like giant Mm -hmm. bat come and like scrape his throat. And then rats, rats are replacing the gnats where this guy's in a helicopter and attacked by like very unusual looking, almost gerbil like. I was like, they look rats. like guinea pigs. I was like, is he being attacked by guinea yeah. pigs? But the, yeah, the fruit bats, yeah. when I saw the fruit bats, they have eyes like my dog's eyes, those like big, yes. super puppy dog brown eyes. Mm-hmm. And ginger I was like, eyes. ginger eyes. And the worst that she's going to do to you is tap dance on your junk when she jumps on you the wrong way. Right. So Wait, which like, apparently yeah. is what these, this breed of bat is not deadly. It's, it's not, you know, there's far more lethal bats. I'm a huge bat fan. Um, <laughs> but the rats were funny because it's like, 
just to really go into how Baroque, and that's the topic of this, right, episode is Baroque horrors. Like, it's not that the rats bite him to death. It's that he's flying a helicopter <laughs> while it's happening. And then well, he, it's, an, it's an airplane. It's, though, yeah, it's it? like an airplane. And he crashes yeah. the airplane with Dr. Fibes and his little, like, telescope watching <laughs> from the airfield. Mm-hmm. Like, it is... <laughs> So yeah, ridiculous. he mostly just freaks him out and he crashes yeah. the plane. That's the one time where it's like not not his fault. But yeah, I, I, at least for the bats, they give them the Cujo treatment of putting little goobers all over them to make them look a little gross. Because yeah, they're they're too cute. Oh, so they're so cute. Sure. Um, and the rats are pretty cute too. It's a little weird that the pilot freaks out that hard. What <laughs> did we think of the unicorn, the gilded unicorn that stabbed him? Oh, that's my favorite. If we're gonna talk about <laughs> the favorite death, definitely the the man being stabbed by the unicorn is my so favorite. So funny. He's cast a thing in bloody brass. It appears to have been fired by a catapult. So, oh, brilliant! About halfway through, they figure out this plot pretty quickly. They can't figure out if Fibes is alive and where he is. Uh, but they know that these doctors are the same doctors that worked on this woman and they're being killed. Uh, And yeah, it's funny because they're just... So half the movie is the joke is that the police cannot stop Dr. Fives from murdering these people. He puts on little disguises and he... And yeah, at one point they just open a door and somebody dies immediately, which is quite fun. But I mean, we talk about how silly most of the deaths are and they're fun and they're funny and they're gross, but like the one that Mm -hmm. like conceptually bothered me where I was like, oh, this is fucking Saw is he steals Joseph Cotton child puts a key mm-hmm. in his lungs surgically and he has to remove the key from his child who's already been anesthetized the kid's not alive uh, that's the d- difference yeah. from a he's saw. alive he's not awake he's yeah he's not sorry he's not conscious not thank you that's the word I'm looking for um, yeah. and then there's acid about to drip down on the child's face and ruin his face the same way Dr. Five's face has been ru- uh, ruined I guess in that yeah. way so that well, for me conceptually yeah. was like hoobly. and all of this is because his wife had a surgery and she was dead within six minutes of the surgery beginning. So it's also that he has six minutes to, um, and that this, the key is implanted in the same kind of position that they were operating on his wife, um, who is also entombed in a vat of like formaldehyde in a different part of this ridiculous. Ca- we haven't even talked about the castle oh slash yeah. lair with slash its animatronic band. circus <laughs> yes. and yeah. oh, it's insanity. Yeah, so much of this movie is uh, dance sequences that are just him and, and his assistant Volnavia <laughs> dancing <laughs> to the mechanical band. Uh, and um, so much of this is, yeah, it's this crazy art deco design. It's this kind of like weird gay 90s revival that was big in the 70s with like TGI Fridays and stuff. <laughs> he has a real TGI like a Fridays TGIS. on a hideout. Yeah. Oh, I've never seen that uh, together. That's so true. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's a thing I was reading about recently where for some reason that was, a, it's a huge thing in the 70s. Yeah. This this kind of like 1890s to 1930s visual yeah, revival yeah. I in mean, design. We don't yeah. have, T- oh, we might have one TGIFs in, I don't think we have any in Canada. I think that they don't look the same though. We don't have that old. It's not the same thing. The old, the old spaghetti factory is I mean, I am yeah. known if you go on my Instagram to someone with a gluten allergy where I should never be eating at the old spaghetti yeah. factory. And the one in Toronto is so ridiculous. And actually, you're right, looks like mm. Dr. Fibes's lair. Sure. Everything's yeah. like packed to the ceiling. Like it's, and, you know, it's yeah. the original joke with Mo from The Simpsons when he has that ridiculous uh, family restaurant. It's like that. Oh, yes. Yes. The other family yeah, grab bag. Totally Most right. family grab bag. Family feed bag, maybe. I don't know. Family grab bag. But, uh, 
there's uh yeah and i mean the dr fives the the sequel is not as great in some ways but in some ways it's delightful for him to uh, go to egypt and enter a mountain and just flick on a light switch and he has I'm another 1920s layer i'm so excited the, it's, it's the next one is bonkers uh, but it, it, like it was real slapdash like we got to make a sequel the next year who and knew like, this okay. was going to be a huge hit because they were planning on making like mm. five more including one where they were recording orson welles to come and do it which is oh wild. yeah it's very God. fascinating what <laughs> happened with with it because this these are all based on these uh, treatments by james whitten and william goldstein uh which are quite different apparently uh and the interesting thing is william goldstein waited i think i believe until the 90s and he actually got the rights back and he ended up writing uh, four or five novels based on his original concept interesting um which is interesting. And I believe a lot of his original concept is in Dr. Five's Rises mm-hmm. Again. Because eventually what what it becomes, slight spoiler, is there there is a magical element. Uh, and like uh, Dr. Five's is like searching for immortality. Well, there has stuff. to be. Because like he has kind yes. of risen from the grave. He sort of has like the body of his wife going in. Or the soul of someone mm-hmm. else in the body mm-hmm. of his wife. Something like that. Like again, I'm not entirely yeah. clear what hap- happening because I was just laughing too hard. Yeah. But. And well, I think a lot of it is thrown away from from Goldstein's uh, script, but in a good way. Like the weird thing is, is I think a lot of this is designed by committee. I think a lot of this is just randomly chosen (laughs) last minute. I think it was random that they decided to end the film with somewhere over the rainbow. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Uh, Cause I mean, people also hate that all, almost all the songs, even the fun uh, songs fives is playing in this one, which are seem to be era appropriate are not, actually you know they're all like this is from 1935 not 1920 yeah one for my baby which is a really famous Mm. it's used in a bunch of um and one for my baby and two for the show like sung by ida lupino very famously like that's a song from the 40s and it's supposed to be taking place in the 20s but it really is i think just it's a soundtrack of highly recognizable movie songs that i think are less recognizable in 2021 i think we all know somewhere over the rainbow but something like that particular Mm. one um, would have been used in so many films in the 40s and 50s. And it's just faded out yeah. now. So it's this weird, I don't know. It's a strange movie. And I definitely, like, I want to tell viewers that I think it's delightful, but you do have to kind of lock in for a, a weird pace. Mm-hmm. It's very slow-paced. And there are these weird, essentially, like, <laughs> Dr. Fives has a celebration after almost every kill, which can be quite long. <laughs> I mean, I was yeah. I was down for those celebrations. Oh, yeah. Yes. I recommended it to a friend of mine who uh, actually tagged me on Facebook after watching it, being like, this was amazing. Thank you. No, yeah. I'm telling everybody about mm-hmm. it. But I did recommend to him that perhaps if, like, the long sequences are not for you, a substance may help your enjoyment. Oh, of this. yes. I watched it this sober. Is, I had a great uh... time. But, you know. But yeah, there's something about being stoned. I mean, obviously, it's a little freaky. People are being murdered. <laughs> really horrible uh, ways. Those there is a, It ends with a very serious Saw style trap. Joseph Cotton plays it incredibly seriously. Yeah. You can see why his career turned to mostly horror and, and science fiction towards the end of his career because he just sells every. The two of them sell it sell all the ridiculous stuff just wonderfully. It's also wild to me that, like, this is a perfect example of, I think, what we're stuck in right now as well, where we talk about this early 70s era 
they hadn't quite figured out where Hollywood was going. Like New Hollywood was just starting and all those actors were kind of just becoming famous. So it's wild that this is a movie starring a 60-year-old and a 66-year-old yeah. fighting each other. And it's like the youngest person in all the movies today is Jason Robards, who is 49. <laughs> yeah. Every, everyone else is like old, old. Uh, and it's like, yeah, it's just because they had not yet found new actors. And, and they knew that these great actors could sell whatever the hell they put in front of them. It was it was just... Before Vincent Price was attached, Fibes was going to be Peter Cushing, mm-hmm. which is like mm-hmm. another person who actually um, was way older than... Uh, was, sorry, way younger than he looked. <laughs> like He, he mm-hmm. always read as yeah, super yeah. old. Um, and if we're going to talk about one young person, so apparently Joanna Lumley of Absolutely Fabulous and the James the Giant Peach, one of my mm-hmm. favorite actresses, she was in this film and all her scenes got cut. She was super young. This would have been like really like, we're talking about yeah. 50 years ago, the early part of her career. So I'm so sad. Like, cause I'm so, maybe she was a nurse. I'm not sure what she was supposed to play, but mm-hmm. I would have loved this to have had very recognizable Joanna Lumley. In it. I'm sure she would have been hilarious. Well, she probably played yeah. everything if dry. You, I mean, she was also, the other thing to remember is early Joanna Lumley. She's just a hot bombshell. I highly recommend if you have not seen Sapphire and Steel, which is like a Doctor Who style show where she plays literally a human version of a sapphire who is solving like space crimes um it's well wild. i want to bring us back to joseph cotton for a second because i it's a name that i'm sure people are like joseph cotton because he shows up in everything he's i think one of the most mm-hmm. prolific actors of the 30s 40s 50s like ridiculous and until i really got into movies his name kept popping up but i didn't actually recognize him on site now i'm like oh it's joseph cotton but like dude was in citizen kane like he was part of the mercury theater like he was a he was a big thing and it's interesting that we don't remember him as much as we remember other people why do you think that is i think he's always that attachment to orson welles which you know yes he's in citizen kane he is killer in the magnificent ambersons yeah. after that mm-hmm. he's also and this is not an orson welles film it's always confused he stars in it i mean he's he, he's in the third man and really mm-hmm. the star of the third man unlike previous films mm-hmm. where he's always a side character um i think he's just it's, it's just, I think Orson Welles overshadows his name, unfortunately. I think he's in yeah. Too Much Johnson as well. Like he's in the earliest days of the Orson Welles films. And, you know, he really is fantastic. But his career sort of took a bit of a nosedive, as most people's did as they aged. And so he was in a lot of schlock. I mean, he also ends his career with um, Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, yeah. just to, you know, so there was a lot of stunt casting that he was, I think, mm-hmm. a victim of that, whereas Dr. Fives, it's it's definitely stunt casting, but it's so effective. And I know, I believe, I think it was Robert Fuse who talked about this, but, like, he refused. Cotton would not memorize his lines. Refused. And so he had to have them kind of fed to him. And he got really mad at Vincent Price because he was, like, you know, how uh, it's not fair because Vincent Price gets to post-dub his voice because it's coming, like, the character can't speak. Yeah. It's coming through his larynx <laughs> with the machine. And then Vincent Price is like, yeah, yeah, but Joey, I still know my lines. <laughs> they had, yeah. like, some sort and of... And apparently he was also famous for knowing everyone's lines so he could, like, stunt on Joseph Cotton being like, I know all yeah, your I lines. Yeah, I think he was, like, feeding <laughs> Joseph Cotton's lines yeah. to him. So, I mean, I think jo- yes. Joseph Cotton comes off really well in this film, but he was having a horrible time and yeah, didn't yeah. want to be here. Um, and Vincent Price is having yeah, the I best also, time of his life. 
I also think Cushing was supposed to be that role, oh, maybe. and his wife was sick or something. So that would there, make sense. Okay. I, I think it was both. I think Cushing was on on both sides because there was uh, it was also a weird contentious time for uh, AIP and Vincent Price. They kind of started to have a falling Contract out, which we'll talk about in the next movie. Yeah. yeah, so I think that there was weird, but yeah. Anyway, it's interesting, and and Joseph Cotton is interesting because I think he kind of falls backwards into this genre, partially because he's in an early Psycho Biddy movie, which you'll talk about mm-hmm. in future mm-hmm. episodes, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, which I think he's quite well cast in, and that movie is kind of before the Psycho Biddy wave. It's it's after Baby Jane, but it's like it's a pretty serious. It could be kind of a classy film, but it's not. But it falls a little <laughs> on the wrong end. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It it uh it goes a little too far. But he's playing like that one. He's well cast as the proper role. This one, it's like, why the hell is this American guy in the UK? Yeah. Uh, in 1920s, why, why, why does a 60-year-old have a teenager son? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. all of this kind of doesn't add yeah, up. Yeah, and it's funny that this was even, like, and I don't think this is true if you actually got out the filmography, but this is advertised as um, Vincent Price's 100th film, which he was yeah. in a lot of films, don't get me wrong, but it's like, you know. Yeah, he was in, like, 200 It's something. so gimmicky, and I think what we, we were kind of discussing earlier, like the poster for this film spoils the entire yeah. reveal. And it's such a like throwback to something like Lon Chaney and the silent version of Phantom of the Opera from 1925, where, you know, that is such an iconic moment where his Eric's mask is ripped off and the audience, you know, there's always all these apocryphal stories that audience members fainted and had to be like carried out on stretchers. Mm-hmm. It's so shocking. And unfortunately, like 50 years later, that's just so old hat that they don't even give the reveal of like what Vincent Price's face really looks like enough attention. Vincent Price is wearing a mask of his own face throughout the whole film. (laughs) So he doesn't actually have any facial gestures. It's, it's ridiculous. ridiculous. I read that his face was actually physically immobilized by putting a collo- yeah. colloidin, I think it's pronounced, in uh, collodion. It's a collodion. Thank you. Chemical. Okay, it's, which would immobilize his muscle so he couldn't move. Is do we think this actually happened? I was like, no. sorry, what? Yeah. No. Okay. I, I hope know. not, because no. collodion is like I think it might profoundly have. toxic, is my okay. understanding. Because anything that's going to yeah. immobilize your face that isn't like Novocaine seems like a very poor idea. I mean, the only thing that makes me wonder is like you can tell, and I mean, he could do it. He's a great actor, but you can tell he's like moving his uh, larynx. Yes. Like you can see when he's speaking, his throat True. moves as if he's speaking. We need that fact check. So I don't. I mean, I guess you could just go. Mm-hmm. You you see it written a lot, but I know what you mean. Uh, you always wonder, but I mean, at the same time, uh, we're not far off of uh, what's his face, the uh, Beverly Hillbillies guy having his lungs covered in silver and stuff from <laughs> The Wizard of Oz. Ugh. It happens. I do want to point people towards, which, uh, Cam, you pointed me towards this. Uh, if people enjoy Dr. Fives, if this is your bag, please immediately go see mm. Theater of Blood because holy yes. shit, that one's just as fun. And also, I don't want to ruin it for you, but it has the greatest, the greatest Vincent Price appearance and line of all time. And if you go uh, YouTube, hello, I'm Butch and Vincent Price, you are in <laughs> yes. for quite the treat. <laughs> My God. Yeah. And I, I also think that there's some ways where the comedy doesn't quite hit here. Like this is a lot of British TV stars. It's it's so it, it's maybe people that British people would be so excited to see, and we're kind of like, huh. But uh, I think that Theater of Blood hits the comedy. It's much more comedic. Yeah. It's much more like in your face, goofy. And Vincent Price loved doing the Shakespeare, so you get him doing what he kind of loves. He yeah. was all all aboard. I love the fact that he's just so game for everything. 
Oh, totally. All right. And speaking of being game for things, the game is afoot as we move on to our next movie, which uh, is combining a lot of universal monster movie elements. Does it work? We're going to find out after the break. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. AIP produced a number of Poe-inspired films, including the Vincent Price-starring Fall of the House of Usher in 1960. But as we journey through 1971, we're going to find audiences are a whole lot more cynical. So, say you have the inspiration to make a movie about murders in the Rue Morgue, but everyone already knew it was a damn dirty ape who did the killing. How would you twist that to make it a new, groovier audience to be able to take notice? Well, you'd combine it with The Phantom of the Opera and make the plot of the movie revolve around a theater Grand Guignol presentation of La Rumorgian sort of thing. Who said self-aware horror was invented in the 90s? Oh, and then add normally the hero Jason Robards as the inevitable bad guy. Or is he? Murders in the Rue Morgue. Let's go, Alicia. It's too much in this film. I was drawing like I had a little piece of computer paper and I was like drawing boxes of like which story is which that they have mishmashed yeah. into this, you know, film that is called Murders in the Rue Morgue, which is absolutely a story <laughs> by Edgar Allan Poe, a short story that yeah. um, was published in 1841 in a magazine. I don't I can't remember which magazine. I don't know a lot about 1840s magazines. I should really know more. <laughs> you're Fair okay. But, um, <laughs> I think you're, you're off the hook. Elizabeth. Yeah, it's a really important post story <laughs> that I think in 2021 we have moved away from. I think there's far more famous Poe that most kids would know, like The Raven, whatever. But um, it's it was really a popular story for film history. Um, and it was made originally in 1932 uh, with Bella Lugosi. Uh, starring um, by Universal. Now, it's not a canonical Universal monster film, which I find really interesting, but it's 1932 Universal with a killer ape. So, I mean, it should be uh, directed by Robert Flory, who a lot of horror fans will know. I watched it last night having, I thought I had seen it in, in my past and while watching it last night, I realized I absolutely had not. It it, it ain't great Lugosi. It ain't okay. great at all. <laughs> like, okay. Which I think is why it's one that, you know, if you're going to buy, which I might own, a beautiful, like, universal um, monsters box set on blu-ray or something like that this never is there or it's sometimes there as like you know on the like ninth disc of uncredited like bonus features <laughs> yeah um even that story in 1932 that adaptation 
changed Poe because it was such a famous story. They wanted, they didn't want to, you know, just be so obvious. They wanted a surprise ending. And that's certainly what the 71 mm-hmm. version does. What the 71 version does, and I, I this is Dr. Fives as well, is take a lot of elements from Gaston LaRue's Phantom of the Opera. So this is, mm-hmm. you know, something that both harkens back to Universal again with Lancini and 1925's Phantom of the Opera. Um, it, there's also a lot of Phantomos for sure. Like in terms of the, mm. the main costume of this mysterious Avenger, it's very Phantomos. So I was happy that Cam brought that up. Um, you know, one of the most famous and fabulous French serials, um, really a blockbuster of its time from the teens. Um, and I, I haven't even described what the story is because I, I, once I got the piece <laughs> of computer paper, which I left at home and I don't have it in front of me. I had like four boxes and then like was trying to, you know, map out the story elements. And eventually I was just like, there is no point. Um, so basically no. there is a, this is a real person. Cesar Sharon is the character that Jason Robarts plays. And he was the man who kind of formed the first sort of famous horror based um, theatrical troupe that toured around Europe and had these really pulpy in the 1840s, these really, really pulpy um, like theatrical uh, sorry, I'm rambling. You know, something that like we see kind of parodied in Interviews the Vampire. If you remember that scene with mm-hmm. like the vampire play that's real vampires. It was just like a lot of like what we picture as Vincent Price films today, but for, you know, the 19th century. Uh, and he is, they're called Grand Guignol, Guignol, Grand Guignol, which like I don't pronounce that right. So I do already apologize. But um, that's always a term I like to use in film reviews that I shouldn't because I don't know how to pronounce it. But also, <laughs> it's great to write yeah, down. Yeah, it's a great, I'm it's actually you. a beautiful, symmetrical looking word. I really love mm-hmm. it or phrase, um, but it really was a genre of theater. Uh, and one of those main theaters was called the Rue Morgue Theater. So this is where the film opens. So they're performing a play. There's a guy in an ape suit, and the play in itself is kind of the Edgar Allan Poe story that they're performing. Mm -hmm. Guy in the ape suit that they think is, you know, just their normal guy who plays the ape Eric, um, really tries to kidnap the woman and, and turns out to be like a murderer. Uh, and then they find the guy that they thought they were that was playing Eric in the ape suit like dead. Much like Fives, there is a systematic um, like list of assassinations of people who are all related to this one murder that happened like 20 years before of one of the lead actresses um, and this actor who had real acid thrown in, in his face, mm. which they thought was a prop but wasn't, and then was supposedly killed but wasn't and is like now a phantom of the opera figure going around in the sat- I know, I know. This is as convoluted as it's saying. You're doing, you're really doing a great yeah, job, it's, Alicia. It's essentially Dr. <laughs> Fives, but a theater, but yes. Uh, yeah. But then there's also this other element of Vidoc, who is a character, mm. the, the French inspect, the French detective in this um, film who is, you know, trying to piece together who the real murderer is. Now, Vidoc was a real person. He was sort of um, Eugène Francois Vidoc, who was from the 19th century, I think born in the 18th century, actually, um, and was like kind of the the first like French, well, really first international criminal sort of like investigator. Mm. He was, you know, he was a former criminal himself. And then he created this incredible practice of like, 
in the early 1800s determining like who who murderers were and you know he became very famous he was a celebrity he's who inspired people like Victor Hugo Edgar Allan Poe Balzac I think even someone like Agatha Christie for Poirot and um, certainly you know Edgar Allan Poe's characters this is like based on a real person and he's also the origin of kind of Sherlock Holmes which is really interesting so we have a story that's the first really kind of the first credited crime fiction um mm-hmm. like something that is very much with us my god like the most you know profitable genre uh that we're is currently like operating uh as well as you know the first sort of de- private detective he wasn't working for the french police um i don't think the french police existed at that point he was really just it, he took it on in the way that sherlock holmes did because the mystery was the challenge not because he cares about fighting crime or finding a murder it's just it was all kind of repartee and intelligence and like puzzle solving and that film and this plot follows that trajectory um to mm-hmm. maybe not a, as a, effective an extent as something like dr fibes so we should be yeah. clear, this is a movie that was directed by Gordon Hessler, and he has been really amazing, especially recently, with doing a bunch of interviews about what went down with this. Um, and uh, apparently there is no original re-intact version of what he intended, which is one yeah. of the reasons why it makes no sense whatsoever. When they took it away from, we'll get into more of it, when they took it away oh, from Oh, could you not tell from my plot description that it doesn't make yes. any sense? Yeah. Exactly. Well, <laughs> I mean, the, you didn't even say bag- that uh, one woman's having magical, uh, like, genetic yes. visions of her mother's Dream past. And body possession the and flash forward yes. there's an axe murderers and guys if you have acid in the face stuff this is all acid in the face <laughs> this so is much all acid, acid in the face. 1971 acid oh, in the face yeah. film but uh but yeah. um but yeah i i don't know it's 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 an interesting movie i think i disagree with gordon hessler in some of at least the interview you sent he he feels that the dream sequences are like pushed a little too hard and I'm like man this this movie this movie uh has trouble making sense so I think it's fine that the dream sequences are obvious and and like once again we're talking about it's this very surreal weirdly paced film that has these very slow and strange almost like uh Italian horror style they uh, felt sequences. when we started getting into the little people, I know a lot of people would be like, it's because there's a little person who ends up being a villain. Not great, but an interesting actor. Um, kind but, of a villain. Or a hero, depending on, hero. on how you see. Again, yeah. <laughs> it's just he, helps, he helps the guy murder he people. Who was trying to find the real murderer. for the right murderer. reasons. But yeah, he's also yeah. trying to steal the daughter. So, you know, not great. That's why he shows up at the I end. I mean, th- I think that that ending is partially what Gordon Hessler okay. hates, where he he's like kind of a magical, weird evil and i mean it's a it's a great role you brought up to, that michael dunn the actor the the little person is, is quite a fascinating He's character he was quite famous on broadway he had a very famous musical group which then turned into what he's most famous for is he originated the role of loveless in wild wild west huh. uh which you might remember kenneth branagh played in the dumb oh. movie of it um, <laughs> yeah so loveless was originally a, a a little person and it's interesting. He got the role of Loveless because he had this singing group with a, a woman. And in the show, Wild Wild West, they the, part of Loveless's deal was they, they sang a song, an evil song whenever they were doing evil. Are you uh, and yeah, the they Will loved him Smith well enough. Wild Wild West was based on a Broadway or a theatrical. Uh, t- a television show. Okay. A television okay. show. Yes, I didn't know yes. that. Okay. Uh, you, yeah. Anyway, it's a it was a '60s TV show, like kind of a Batman style uh, <laughs> TV show. 
but it's it's interesting because that's kind of if you know know Michael Dunn, you know him as Loveless, mm-hmm. and uh, but yeah, he's this kind of fascinating, well regarded actor, and unfortunately, he died uh, shortly after this film uh, just due to complications from his dwarfism, mm-hmm. uh, which is yeah, very sad because he's he's, he's great. a great he's actor, good. and and he and I think the thing that you can balance it with is he has a very actually complicated role. He's not there's plenty of uh, you know don't look now style dwarf jumping out at you. He also <laughs> operates this a is, Punch this and is Judy a, show, which I yes. a lot of yes, this takes this place at a, a carnival. A, yeah. God, this is yeah, so complicated. A full character. <laughs> he he definitely throws in their faces that they're rude to him because he, he's a dwarf. Mm-hmm. Do I disgust you? <sighs> I didn't disgust your mother. He also uh, has a great like twist of the knife that they tried to manipulate him because they thought that he would not want to lose his job. He he was the one guy who kind of saw the truth of all these murders, and uh, they tried he to called them on yeah, their they shit. tried to yeah. So I mean, he's a little uh, he's involved in murders. Let's not, <laughs> not, get, not get it twisted. He's dabbling, he's murdering, dipping his toe people. in a bit of murders for sure. But yeah, he does have a cane that turns into a giant sword. But, you know. <laughs> but I was gonna say that like a lot of people would look at those dream sequences and think it's like Lynchian, right, with the angles and stuff. And I'm looking, yes, I'm like, yeah. no, this mm-hmm. looks like the dream stuff, like the weird dream stuff from the end of Pet Cemetery. Like it's more Mary Lambertian for sure. me. Yes, it's very yeah. weird. And I love yeah. that they have the thing where it's like, no, number one, I don't think that they even mean for you to not think that Jason Robards is yeah. bad in this. He's kind of a jerk. And then the guy in the dream sequences looks a lot like him, which I kind of love. It's obviously not him, but they chose somebody with a very similar jaw structure mm-hmm. to be this kind of figure with an axe menacing the was woman. Was Jason Robards uh, just yeah. out at that point and didn't do it? Or was that an intentional choice? I mean, I love the great story that I love. Yeah, is that's that possible. Jason Ro- Jason Robards, they're like, obviously Jason Robards was a huge get. It, it's kind of the nadir of his career, but he came back, obviously, with, like, all the President's Men and then had a wonderful career throughout the 70s and 80s. But uh, so this is, like, a brief kind of five-year nadir of his career. But I love that they were like, he, he, could ta- he could take any role he wanted, and he chose the lead, which is fair. But when he got on set, he went, God damn it, I should have taken that Herbert Lom role. Yeah, the and apparently, Gordon Hessler said... You could have been the maid. <laughs> this is your fault. <laughs> Don't complain to me. He's like, you could have been whatever character you wanted. Uh, it's too late. We filmed a week. Herbert Lom is the bad guy. Honestly, I don't think Robert's is good in this. No. No, he's not. He's phoning it in. Ro is dead. Dead and buried. Yes, I know, but... But Eric must have had a personal life. Some old enemies. But the acid. His face was burnt. The dead do not return, Jeanette. He doesn't look right. Like, Fibes he's, looks he's, stunning. Yeah. And this film, even in its prosthetic work, and I didn't, I actually, I, I did enjoy this film. I don't want to, under, I don't want to, mm. like, you know, walk all over it. But just watching it back to back with Fibes made Fibes look so much greater. Because yeah. um, this doesn't, mm. like, this ha- takes place within the framework of the carnival-esque. I mean, it's, it's literally at a carnival mm. as well, which helps. But it doesn't have enough wackiness. It doesn't have enough, de- you know, deliciously devilish, tongue in cheek. I think it's taking itself way too seriously. Totally, and I think that they're like it's. This is again falling into that problem where I think that these no one was yet committing to young up and coming actors, and I think that the fact that 
the Jason Robards character should be a handsome, charismatic young man. That's such a good point. Who you don't think is evil. Like, imagine that this is Jack Nicholson, for yeah. instance. Oh, my God. You who is working be... with Corman? So, like, why can't it be yeah. Jack Nicholson? Like, or somebody like that. So, so one of the kind of young guys of the 70s yeah. that is hot. You know, I would have uh, taken an Elliot like, Gould. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, one of the Carradines, even. Sure, I'll, I'll take whoever. I just need some cheekbones. Gould doesn't work for me because there's no cheekbones there. I need cheekbones for this well, role. Yeah, fair mm. enough. Alia Gould being the head of a, a French theater <laughs> might be a little bit of a stretch. Uh, but uh, yeah, anyway, I, I just think that there's something there. Like, at least give you something, because there's nothing really sexy other than the woman. I mean, a, an aspect we haven't talked about, too, that makes these exploitation movies was that old-timey films were acceptable exploitation because you could have these plunging necklines mm-hmm. on ladies. And this also has, like, a you know, some sex workers. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it gets quite racy. And that's what Hammer was doing at the same time, too. They realized yeah. that you could have these busty women in, in bustiers and bodices. This is uh, way more Hammer around. than European art house filmmaking the way Fives mm-hmm. is. Like, when I watched Fives, I thought of, like, yeah. Donkey Skin, Podin by Jacques Demy, in terms of its color palette. I thought mm-hmm. a lot of Godard. Whereas, like, this just feels a, very much a throwback to an era that was quite ugly and doesn't work in 1971. Mm-hmm. Well, let's yeah. get into yeah. AIP, because we've talked about this a few times, but we've never really gone into sure. it. And as I mentioned, they were a division of, um, of MGM, and they were there specifically for the teens, and they were run in part by Roger Corman. What was going yes. on there, guys? Oh, my God. Uh, my favorite thing. Let get me just say. the piece of paper, uh, start drawing the boxes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, well, even better. Let me let me list this out to you, which you will love. Uh, we talked a bit about Samuel Ziarkov, who is kind of the mastermind, the guy who did all the 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 audience testing, and I think I think honestly knew a lot about movies. I don't always want to be defending these shitty businessmen who know what people want, but I find them kind of fascinating because they tend to know what people want, then they tend to reach too far and screw up mm-hmm. and, and have a big downfall, like Quibi, for instance, Jeffrey Katzenberg. Uh, but Samuel Ziarkov, my favorite thing, he had a formula based on his own name, Arkov, for movies, where you want A, action. <laughs> Uh, exciting drama. Oh my god! R revolution. You want novel or controversial themes and ideas? You want K killing a modicum of violence? You want O oratory? You want a great dialogues and oh, I speeches? Thought it was gonna be, I thought it was going to be orgasm. F. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, you'll you'll get there. Uh, the first F is fantasy. Acted out fantasies common to audiences. Uh, the final F is fornication, uh, yes, sex appeal for go. young adults. I feel like he uh, sat down with anyway, a piece of paper yeah. and wrote this out, and I just think someone should have taken that paper away from him. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, I love that. And it seems like he maybe made it up in retrospect. Uh, but yeah, he also had a, a fascinating thing. that, like He had a thing called Peter Pan Syndrome, where he's like, a young child will watch anything an older child will watch, but an old child will wa- not watch anything a young child will watch. He said girls will watch boy movies, but boys will not watch girl movies. <laughs> like he has, he has all these weird <laughs> theories, and he uh, he said the nineteen year old male is the 
person to he sounds like the Willy Wonka of like exploitation yeah and I mean like we we talked about that like you know swinging his (laughs) his cudgel around (laughs) he accidentally made a lot of movies like we we first talked about him I believe with Cooley High and it was like that was him just being like we need a teen movie for black people and and we should get black people to do it because they'll understand it better smart man and it's like yeah and I and I mean he understood like the other thing that's wild which we talked about with this movie like um there's all these great Edgar Allan Poe adaptations. Edgar Allan Poe wrote poems and short yeah. stories. He did not write novels. None of these things have a full story I for a film. That. That's so true. What a so good point. Uh, everyone is padded to hell, yeah. and they did a good job of it. And and I think with both of these films, when you talk hear from Gordon Hessler and and Robert Fuest. I think that they also chose directors who could write kind of and conceptualize because I think that they quite often, it might have been Hessler, said that like they hand you a piece of garbage treatment and are kind of like do with it what you will. And uh, he, so you you had free reign and that's why I think uh, Fibe stands out so Mm -hmm. much because I think Robert Fuis had this beautiful visual style Mm -hmm. and this idea for humor. Uh, which really made that movie stand out. And I think that this one stands out in its own way just by making it function at all and being totally bizarre. And yeah. you, like, you never know where it's going. Well, Hessler also was coming off of the oblong box, which is another Poe mm-hmm. thing. And like, we're seeing a ton of Lovecraft now. They, they were It was all Poe then. And as Alicia mentioned well, before we even started the show, it's because that stuff had just gotten into the public domain. So everybody was making everything. Oh, yeah. And I mean, it's worth saying that AIP was also the... Um, the the source of any any H.P. Lovecraft you got like the Dunwich Horror and the Haunted Palace they were there too yeah they, they definitely just, were working they, with they, his literary they hit agent. different <laughs> yeah yeah exactly uh, they they knew what was cheap and free um, but yeah I think I think Lovecraft stuff just doesn't hit till the eighties because there's not the technology to do it yeah. quite often you're like it's an invisible mo-. It, I mean it's still a tough thing to pull off. Uh, and yeah, anyway, the two famous racists who wrote a lot of horror <laughs> stories. Uh, what are you going to do? Yeah, We've talked about how Vincent Price was very much with AIP up until this point. This was also mm. supposed to be Vincent Price, but wasn't. Nobody really can say why. They think that there was a contract dispute and he walked off. Because yeah, uh, Gordon Hessler worked a lot with Vincent Price. A lot of great movies. Cry of the Banshee is a great uh, classic witch hunter, Vincent Price. Uh, and yeah, The Oblong Box, which was apparently a huge hit. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really unfortunate. And I think that Hessler kind of, I mean, he's like, obviously it's a dream to get Jason Robards. That's wild. Um, but he definitely is like, yeah, this movie would have killed if it was Poe or if it was, uh, as you said, as you said, Alicia, this is missing mustache twirling. Like there's really no, even, yeah. even, um, Herbert Loam doesn't really twirl his mustache. He can't have no, one. No, you but... know what? He's, I would say he's not perfect either. What have you done to her? Hypnosis, says I. It was the only way to make her listen and understand. Understand? Understand what? The truth, Cesar, that it was you who put the real acid into the beaker. Now! Just! You let the woman I loved disfigure me. But you never thought she would love me still, did you? He's he's kind of weird. You you wish for a, a Cushing or a Christopher Lee or, or something. And that's what Michael Dunn brings, which I think very few other people are bringing. I also will say I, I quite enjoy um, the the woman, uh, Christine Kaufman. She's uh, she's quite interesting. Christine Kaufman was uh, Tony Curtis's one of Tony Curtis's many wives, which I liked in that Gordon Hessler interview. 
How many wives did I, this is off the how many wives did Tony Curtis have? I know he had a bunch. I mean, let me Google it. <laughs> I think quite a lot. Uh, I mean, he was a, he's the fascinating guy because he's the guy who who in modern context seems like he's like this guy's gay, right? <laughs> but uh apparently not. Apparently he just ran through women. Um, and was a, a famously horny dude. Six. Okay, that's that's pretty good. That's a good run. Um, okay, yeah. the other thing I do want to point out before we wrap this up is that um, I love that at the time, the cheap places to film were Italy and Spain. Yeah. I mean, it's wild. It's wild that this movie, they're like, yeah, it was made, it's a garbage movie made on the cheap, and it looks better than, <laughs> and like more beautiful. And it's set in a period, like, it's wild that these cheap movies, they're like, yeah, let's knock one off, we'll set in the 1920s. You're like, what? <laughs> yeah. I guess they, they filmed it in Spain because a, a set from that period was not available um, through MGM. So they just like flew the whole crew to Madrid, and then a lot of it's filmed in Toledo. Um, yeah. You know, so it's actual, like, period castles and things like that which i actually thought that was a very effective it was beautiful yeah, yeah. It, it's i mean it's just insane to me the thought we live in a country where <laughs> the thought of making a period piece is unimaginable because of the price and it's like it's just crazy to think that there's there was a time where people were like oh well we got to poop something out so it better be a period well the buildings were all still really dirty they looked like it was like the 19th century like you film europe today and you have to dirty it up because you need a cathedral or you know a white stone building to look like it would have in the industrial revolution which is pitch black I just love how in true, the credits true. they're like filmed entirely on location in Spain and Spain has an exclamation point at the end. And I just, just mm. delighted by that. It might have been a city some, in some other country called Spain exclamation point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's some sort of uh, tax write off like that Arkov knew made about. with real cream and then there's a little trademark beside the word cream and you're like, <laughs> yeah, wait yeah. a minute. 100% beef yeah, brand. Cream is spelled with two E's. Yeah. You just realize it. You're like, I see. That's, it's definitely yeah. one of those ingredients that you would find in the Vincent Price. <laughs> oh, yes. True. Oh, my gosh. If you get away with murder and you sit down to a puppet show <laughs> and the puppets enact the exact murder you just committed. And then point at I you and you say, get, you did it. You did yeah, it. Yeah, you, you, you get out of town. You don't laugh it off, Jason Robards. <laughs> that is the craziest thing Jason Robards does. Is he's like, like, well, it's probably just a coincidence those puppets just did exactly the murder we did. Wild. Uh, I think the other thing I just don't understand is like, okay, so you worked your ass off and you committed a murder in order to marry this woman who now you want to spend no no time with whatsoever. Like that's kind of fascinating to me. Yeah. Yes. I, mean, I mean, we should say, we should say that it's, it's the daughter of the woman he was in love with. Yes. So there's also that creepiness where, you know, the love yeah. of his life who did not reciprocate is murdered horribly. And then he marries her very young daughter who he would have known when she was like seven or eight years old, but doesn't want to spend any time with her and is having multiple affairs with other people. And this came up, in a real life scenario on the podcast with Peter Bogdanovich. Yes. <laughs> Those were sisters, but this, oh, yeah, this is geez. a thing, apparently. Yeah. Yep. 
Okay, as we enter the 70s, and this is going to be a really great season. I'm so excited to do the 70s right now because 71, as we learned from doing the show, which is, I believe it won't have aired when this podcast comes out. No, it's, no. it's coming. It's, it's forthcoming. We're in Shocktober, no, baby. It's going to be real it's good. Coming. Um, but the biggest, the biggest thing people need to know as we kind of move through is that 71 is such a pivotal year because after Easy Rider, no one knew what was going to mm. hit. And it just gets yes. weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's a real head scratcher. And it's fascinating to see how much horror changes because what we're talking about right now in our Shocktober episodes, it's mostly kind of the end of these 60s trends and a couple start of 70s trends. But if you think that within the same decade we've got Halloween, mm-hmm. it, it's like wild. And start and starting to see the beginning of the slasher genre, which we're going to get into because mm-hmm. that's that's a whole other thing. I'm very I'm so excited. This is going to be so great, guys. So that having been said, Alicia Fletcher, welcome back for season three. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm really excited about the season. We have a lot of um, cuckoo bananas things to talk about especially with the 70s horror so it's nice that this is you know we're we're in october that's my favorite month it's my birthday month it's halloween i'm feeling great um yeah and and thank you so much for everything becky this is we're we're in the third season it's great and i do want to mention that i'm looking at the recipe right now for vincent price's ghoulish goulash (laughs) and it actually (laughs) looks like normal like edible like i like goulash a lot so this might be the one I don't know about his Buckingham eggs. It looks really weird. <laughs> Apparently, mm. the trout in the dishwasher is delicious, and the secret is you don't Ugh. put soap in. <laughs> I don't know. But I would also think the secret is that you have never put soap <laughs> in your dishwasher. The secret is having a brand new dishwasher. Yeah, and it's throwing it out right away. You're basically steaming it. Like, it's like half coach, half steam. Like, that's pretty much what's happening. So you don't actually need the dishwasher. It's just the novelty. I feel like mm. if, like, in today's world if Vincent Price were living which I wish he was he'd probably be that guy who would like make everything in a rice cooker because wasn't it Roger Ebert who wrote a book on like every recipe was about rice cooking like (laughs) all the things you could steam on top while making the rice all I know is he wrote Beyond the Valley of the Dolls I think he also wrote I I, I mean I'm not fact checking this because I will let the listeners (laughs) that he wrote a rice cooker cookbook I'm looking this up Uh, you're right I I mean Roger Ebert cooking uh, Everything's turns a rice cooker. into rice cooker. Yeah, a pot, the pot, and how to ah! use it. <laughs> <laughs> that's so, that's so okay, I, I actually do collect vintage cookbooks, so like most of them are Jello related. But I will I mean, definitely I be grabbing my Vincent Prices and my Roger Ebert. <laughs> All right, Cam. Uh, sorry, oh, that was a detour. Sorry, <laughs> no, that was no, fabulous. Uh, Cam, welcome back for season three. How are you? Uh, yeah, thank you. I mean, I'm fine. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, looking looking forward to some of the fun stuff. I think in in addition to the '70s, people should. Really look forward to the 90s because 97 was a year that maybe it's just our age, but it's just all bangers. Yeah, it's hit after hit. It's all and all. It's that era of hits, right? Everything was a hit. It didn't matter what it was. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) the white album of. I think I watched like 24, 25 (laughs) movies just for the TV series. Being like, I know I can't talk about all these, but man, I want to watch them all. Cam, thank you so much. Thank you. All right. And you can join us next week where we are joined by brand new guest Kat Ellinger, someone who literally wrote the book about Daughters of Darkness, which we'll be talking about next week, alongside doing a Blu-ray commentary for Let's Scare Jessica to Death, another movie we're talking about. If spooky atmosphere is your thing, you're not going to want to miss it. That's coming up next week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. 
Want to email the podcast? You can do so at podcast at hollywoodsuite.ca. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial free. Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite on demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland, and featured Cameron Maitland and Alicia Fletcher as guests. Supervising producer is Ryan Maines. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagne. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.